Welcome to The Last Best Hope, the podcast from Oxford's RAI, which examines America from the outside in. I'm Adam Smith. On the 1st of September, 1850, the Swedish opera singer Jenny Lind, the Swedish nightingale, arrived in New York City on the steamer, the SS Atlantic. Channeling the idea of the United States as the last best hope of Earth, when she saw the American flag flying... Jenny Lynn supposedly said, There is the beautiful standard of freedom, the oppressed of all nations worship it. Thanks to a marketing campaign by her manager, the legendary P.T. Barnum, the public's anticipation was at fever pitch. Jenny Lynn then embarked on a nine-month-long, 95-stop tour of the nation. She was wildly popular. People's clothes were torn, people were climbing all over each other. And there was such pandemonium that people couldn't hear the orchestra playing, which was trying to play calming music unsuccessfully. Crowds stampeded, women fainted at her performances. America was gripped with Linda mania. Jenny Lynn handkerchiefs, Jenny Lynn clothing. Still today, there are things called the Jenny Lynn cradle. Jenny Lind may have called the American flag the standard of freedom, but as she sang, America was riven by slavery. Two weeks after she arrived, Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act, giving the federal government sweeping new powers to help slaveholders recapture black people in free states who they claimed had escaped bondage. And so everywhere she went, people wanted to know where Jenny Lynn stood on this great existential question. So, what did this major cultural event tell us about America and its place in the world at this pivotal moment in the middle of the 19th century? And what is its lasting impact? Well, joining me today are Catherine K. Preston, the Robert and Margaret Bottom Professor Emerita of Music at the College of William and Mary, and Robert Wilson, editor of The American Scholar and author, most recently, of a new biography of P.T. Barnum. Robert, if I can start with you, uh, P.T. Barnum had already established a, a reputation as an impresario before he became Jenny Lynn's manager, but most people, when they think of him, they think of his, they think of his American Museum, the Fiji Mermaid, Tom Thumb, this kind of theater of the grotesque. How does Jenny Lind, the opera singer, fit in with all of that? Barnum became aware of Jenny Lind at a point in his life when he wanted to see real changes. He had taken Tom Thumb to England and into Europe and had discovered about himself a great fondness for the vine. And uh, when he got back after those tours, he began to worry about his relationship with drink. That, among other things, caused him to sort of reevaluate himself. And one of the th ways that he decided to do this was uh, once he became aware of Jenny Lynn's great popularity and prestige in, in, in Europe and England, he decided that if he kind of connected his name to hers, it would be a way of um, sort of changing the um, dynamic of his life. 
he says in his autobiography that he sort of assessed the possibility of working with Lind and and saw it primarily as a, I mean, saw it both as an opportunity to make money, which was always of interest to Barnum, but um, also as an opportunity to uh, align himself with a new kind of act, an act that wasn't, um, you know, a monkey uh, sewn to a fish or a, a little person, but um, something that was had already been established as being, you know, admirable and, and noble. The public is a very strange animal, fickle and oftentimes perverse. A slight misstep in the management of a public entertainment frequently wrecks the most promising enterprise. From his 1855 autobiography, The Life of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. Taking all things into account, I arrived at the following conclusion. Inasmuch as my name has long been associated with humbug and the American public suspect that my capabilities do not extend beyond the power to exhibit a stuffed monkey skin or a dead mermaid, I can afford to lose $50,000, provided the engagement is carried out with credit to the management. It's a tribute, I think, to the effectiveness of, of Barnum's publicity campaign that uh, one newspaper, or many newspapers, said something similar to this, called called Jenny Lind the most popular woman in the world on the brink of her tour. Uh, Catherine Preston, can you describe for us the place of celebrity entertainers in America at that time? In fact, uh, this was part of a culture. As people gained more economic independence and as cities grew and as people had more disposable time and disposable income, that kind of fed into this idea that we wanted entertainment. And entertainment was mostly on the stage. It was mostly in the theater. Um, and that included singers and mesmerizers and lecturers and you name it. There were lots of, of celebrities who came to the United States and they, and much of their success, not all of it, but a lot of their success was because they were celebrities. And I've heard it said about Jenny Lynn that she was famous for being famous. Queen Victoria saw her, didn't she, three years before, and that must have given Jenny Lynn a credibility, a cachet. And the Queen actually went to every concert that Jenny Lynn sang in the in her first season there. Right. And I'm sure Prince Albert did as well. He was a, he was very much an opera an opera fan. She had this uh air of purity about it, didn't it? Queen Victoria had gone to see her, so she can't have been too uh, sketchy or dangerous a a prospect. Um she was a Lutheran. I mean, she had this this air of purity about her. How important Catherine was that to her success, do you think? It was absolutely, absolutely important to her success. Um, I mean, there, I think there's no question she was a very pious, religious woman. But in fact, in, uh, in this period in America, although the theater was an extraordinarily important and vital aspect of American life, there still were lots of people who didn't believe in the theater. There were lots of church-going Americans who considered the theater to be something like lying. 
women in particular had a problem because the theater was associated with loose women. There was a notorious third tier where women would stay. I mean, prostitutes would be there and you could go up if you're a man, you could go up and you can have a little liaison during intermission. Um, there were lots of, uh, lots of body behavior. All of that kind of reflected on the place of women in the theater. And not only were women actors suspect because they were itinerants. You didn't know who they were. You didn't know what their parents were. You had no idea. I mean, this is a period when women going out on the street had to have a chaperone, right? So these women who are itinerants, uh, they had to fight a lot of battles. And one of the ways that many of them did is by making sure they gave benefit concerts and the money went to a local charity. So Lynn kind of took that to the next level because she was so successful at making money. She could make lots of money and you know, and donate lots of dollars, but she she wasn't alone in that. Barnum started the American Museum in the early 1840s. He had a theater in the museum, but he didn't want to call it that. He called it a lecture room. And it was for that very reason that people were so suspicious of the theater. Um, and also there was a real aspect to what he did as a as a purveyor of entertainment of trying to sort of raise the general level. Even in his museum, he made it very clear that it would be a safe place for families and children and women. There were no drunkenness would be permitted and that sort of thing. How did Barnum sell Jenny Lynn then? How was he trying to position her in this cultural marketplace? Well, Barnum um, had long had a very close relationship with the press one of his early businesses was he owned a newspaper. He started a newspaper. So by the time Jenny Lynn came along, he was very close to, you know, people like Horace Greeley. And who was the editor of the New York Tribune, which I think was the biggest circulating newspaper at the time, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, and he often wrote squibs for them and, and um, even articles for them that were published not under his name. So by the time Jenny Lynn came along, he was a master, really, of using the press to create excitement. And he had six months from the time that he signed the contract with, with Jenny Lynn till she came to New York. And in that time, he was just constantly feeding the press items, um, uh, ranging from first saying neither he nor Jenny Lynn was interested in making money. They were just doing it for, you know, out of uh, in their hearts, <laughs> uh, which was, I'm sure, just received with great skepticism by the audience. But then he then he soon linked how much money he leaked, how much money he was paying Jenny Lind. How much was it? I think he said it was going to be three hundred thousand dollars. He had already put one hundred eighty seven thousand dollars into a bank in London at her insistence as part of the original contract. She didn't trust him. She wanted the money up front. Initially she did, yeah. So and then he would he would leak things as insignificant as what hotel he'd booked her in in Boston. You know, but that would be a story that would be picked up and it would, you know, all around the country people would read this little squib. He even uh managed to get uh newspapers in America to publish reviews of concerts that had happened in Europe years before. He commissioned a review of her, la her last concert 
in Liverpool as she was about to get on the boat and got it shipped on a faster ship than she was on to New York. So it was, it was actually published on the front page of one of the big newspapers the day she arrived in New York. Ha! Let's just turn to the sheet music we've got, which is called Welcome to Jenny Lind, as sung to her by the Hutchinson family on the occasion of her visit to America. Words by Jesse, who was one of the Hutchinson uh, family. I can actually sing, sing part of this one if you want me to. I'd love you to, Catherine. Go for it. From the snow-clad hills of Sweden, like a bird of love from Eden, lo, she comes with songs of freedom, Jenny Lynn comes o'er the sea, far away from home, endearing, yet her heart no longer fearing, for she hears a nation cheering, Jenny, welcome to join the free. It's a very celebratory song, lots of repetition, so you can go out of the theater this is an earworm in your ear is you know humming it so it's it's a it's a it's a really catchy uh tune it is going to go around in people's ears and what's going to go around in their ears is jenny welcome to the free yes yes of course you know she's she's been welcomed to the the free land of the united states and that's the vision i think that the hutchinson family singers want to and there are four verses which are similar So they would have sung all of it, and you really would have had it as an earworm. The Hutchinson family singers we've actually talked about before on this podcast. They were uh, abolish. They were an abolitionist family. They were sensationally popular, quite wealthy. I mean, they'd made a lot of money from their music and donated a lot of it to anti-slavery causes. I mean, what, what's the significance of the fact that the Hutchinson family singers wrote this song called "Welcome to Jenny"? You're suggesting that perhaps they were trying to enlist her her support in terms of, of, of abolitionist activities? I think they probably were. I think they probably were, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Another way of looking at it, not not negating that, is the fact that this was, this was one of the most popular pop music uh, groups in America during the time. And for them to say welcome uh is is you know it's, it's like uh you know uh the rolling Stones saying hi beatles come on in you know uh so so it was it was a, it was a gesture i think uh it was also you know a way to get on bandwagon i mean they didn't need to get on the bandwagon but they were wanted to be part of it as well and so robert can you just p- paint a picture of the of that first performance she gave uh when she after she arrived in new york can you describe the scene well, once again, it was a, an event that Barnum had carefully created. It was at Castle Garden, which had been a fort in New York Harbor. A bridge had been built to it and had been ceded from the army to the city to use as an entertainment spot. The music began uh, eventually after a couple of performances. Jenny Lynn came out all dressed in white, of course, being the pure object that she was, and uh, was led through the orchestra to the stage where um, she got a 20-minute standing ovation before anything even happened. It, it, It was a long time before she could even begin. Barnum later recalled, The reception of Jenny Lynn on her first appearance, in point of enthusiasm, was probably never before equaled in the world. As the conductor led her towards the footlights, the entire audience rose to their feet and welcomed her with three cheers. 
accompanied by the waving of thousands of hats and handkerchiefs. The people were in ecstasies. The powers of editorial acumen, type, and ink were inadequate to sound her praises. The Rubicon was passed. Tell us about what kinds of songs she performed, Catherine. She performed operatic arias, especially from her, uh, her, her featured career. I should point out that she, before she came to the States, she was very well known as an opera singer. By the age of 29 or 28, she has sung like 700 roles. So she would sing um, arias from those operas, La Sonnambula, Norma, but mostly bel canto operas by Bellini and Donizetti and Rossini. But then she would, she would sing these other pieces that might be pieces that were written for her that became part of her repertory, including one called the Bird Song, the famous Bird Song. I, I do have a quotation about this one from a review. In the famous flute song, I assume it's the Bird Song, she tells the flute player how to execute a certain air, imitating with her voice many of the trills and ornaments, which of which this piece is replete, which she does with so much skill that flute and voice seem to mingle till you can hardly distinguish one from the other. This was ear candy for people. They love this kind of stuff, the high soprano voice. And she made it a signature song. And in addition to one called the, the Herdsman song, which had all these echoes from, you know, Tyrolean, you know, mountains and, the, and someone playing their flute, getting the sheep together and so forth. And it was a kind of this echo thing. And there are lots of quotations about uh, her skill at echoing her own voice, um, which must have been just pretty i mean especially in a place like castle garden a huge place which would be resonating with this sound it must have been just spectacular throughout the tour presents of all sorts were showered upon the swedish singer according to barnum milliners and shopkeepers vied with each other in calling her attention to their wares delighted if in return they could receive her autograph acknowledgement songs quadrilles polkas were dedicated to her and poets sung in her praise we had Jenny Lynn gloves, Jenny Lynn bonnets, Jenny Lynn riding hats, Jenny Lynn shawls, robes, chairs, sofas, pianos. In fact, everything was Jenny Lynn. This had, this had really started in London. There was an incredible amount of this sort of thing happened when she was in, in the United Kingdom. And Barnum tells a story about the day that he signed Jenny Lynn, he was riding on a train uh, back from Philadelphia, where he happened to be. And he talked to the gentleman conductor whom he knew and asked him about Jenny Lind. And the conductor said, oh, is is that a dancer? And so Barnum says at that point, I really had a lot of work to do. But I was looking, you know, I looked, uh, you know, in the back pages of the newspapers. And there had already been for years um, items associated with Jenny Lind's name for sale. And there were gossip items about her. And she provided a lot of grist for gossip during her time in, in England. And um, so it would have been hard for that conductor not to have known about her then. But, but yes, every, I, there were no, um, you know, there was no copywriting it or anything like that. Everybody just jumped on the bandwagon. And, and this had happened with Tom Thumb too. When he went to France, there were all these people made Tom Thumb cakes and things like special pastries. And so, yeah, people just jumped on anything that was in, you know, was popular. 
This is from a woman named Carolyn Barrett White, who was a Bostonian, a Massachusetts woman, kept a diary for about 65 years. And she wrote, after seeing Jenny Lynn, she said, uh, tonight, Mademoiselle Jenny Lynn gives her farewell concert in Boston. I cannot bear to think that I shall never again listen to the tones of her sweetest of voices. Probably it will never be heard again in these parts. She is to sing in Worcester and New York, and I know not where else, but in other places before she leaves this for her native country. All who have seen and heard her must love her, I am sure. As the rich melody of her voice melted into the soul, so the touching and beautiful expression of her countenance and the simplicity of her manner must have won the heart of every beholder. I esteem it as one of the pleasantest occasions of my past life, the evening I was permitted to hear and see her, one for which I cannot be too grateful. So this is remembering a previous concert. Reminds you of, you know, Beatlemania and thing, you know, the, the sort of moral crises that people had in the 1960s of, of, of young women kind of swooning. I mean, there was a kind of direct sexual element there because there were kind of bands of young men gyrating their hips. But I mean, there's, there's, there's clearly something, there's pretty, there's a lot of passion going on here, isn't there? The next entry, and this, this is a very, just a, a, a very short um, uh, entry after what she's talking about, what she did during the day is from February 5th, 1852. Jenny Lynn has married this morning to Otto Goldschmidt in Boston. And all of that is underlined. How could she do such a thing? Oh, I wish she would give us another opportunity to hear her sweet voice. How I envy Mr. Otto Goldschmidt. He can hear it every day for nothing. Her reaction to the marriage, she's clearly jealous of Mr. Otto Goldschmidt, who she's underlining. But this isn't just a description of somebody having had a good evening at a concert, is it? I mean... This is this is deep passion. I mean, she loves Jenny Lind. I mean, how's she going to cope when she goes back to Europe? She's never going to hear her again. Right. And and also remember, we have a hard time remembering this. But if you are in the 19th century in 1851, 52, and you hear a performance, you're not going to go get another recording of this thing. This is the last time you're going to hear this. And so t- to a, a listener to be able to hear somebody like this and then to realize I will never hear that again. If, especially if it gave you a great deal of pleasure, is a really really dismaying idea. Swoons. It's not, it's not too strong a word. She's swooning there. Robert, could I, I just offer one thing about that passage, though? I think the business about the marriage, we shouldn't leave out the possibility of, of some anti-Semitism in that. And the, the, the repetition of the name, he was, he was a Jew who converted to Christianity in order to marry her. The other thing that is important to remember is that many women, when they married, left the stage. And so her comment about, you know, Mr. Goldschmidt will hear her voice for free and I will never hear it again may have been a lament that she maybe is going to leave the stage. This happened a lot. So there, it's, it's three-pronged. You know, it's, it's the possible anti-Semitism is the fact that she's no longer chased and the fact that she may actually leave the stage because she's married. So... I want to ask you both about Jenny Lind and the issue of slavery. She arrived in the United States right in the middle of the crisis in Congress over what became known as the 1850 Compromise just a couple of weeks before the Fugitive Slave Act was passed. So she was being petitioned right from the start by abolitionists, by anti-slavery groups, to make us take a stand on slavery. And Robert, I think 
Barnum was very keen that she stay above the fray, not least because, of course, he had booked her in for many appearances in slave states. Yeah, I mean, the the time in which I'm most aware of this coming up is just as they were embarking on a tour of the South and they had gone to Washington and and then were heading further south. And right when they were in Washington, a newspaper broke a, broke a story claiming that uh, that Jenny Lind had given $1,000 to an abolitionist group, which she may well have. She had actually given a lot of money to sort of Negro orphans, homes, and that sort of thing. Um, I, and I think in smaller quantities. But anyway, it was immediately perceived that this could not go unanswered. And both um, both Barnum and Lind gave statements to the newspapers, although Barnum probably wrote Lind's statement, saying that, no, no, she had not associated herself with an abolitionist group and, and certainly made no statement that she herself was an abolitionist, at least at that time. But I gather that at the very end of her tour, she read Uncle Tom's Cabin, which came out in serial form while she was in America. And she made a contribution of, I believe, $100 to Harriet Beecher Stowe to help purchase the freedom of an enslaved family and wrote a a, a letter to Harriet Beecher Stowe after Mrs. Stowe had come to see one of her final performances in in New York. So just at the point when she was about to leave, she appeared to kind of declare her anti-slavery credentials, um, which she'd been playing close to her chest up until, up until, up until then. And Barnum himself was sort of transitioning at that point from having racial views that were not untypical of his time. His interest in, um, fighting alcohol put him in contact with lots of preachers who were also abolitionists. And so he became more and more uh, persuaded by that. And And his wife was a great abolitionist um, long before he was. You know, I mean, clearly he behaved ignobly in this, um, in response to this newspaper story about her being an abolitionist. Uh, but but his his views were changing. After nine months and I think 95 concerts, P.T. Barnum and Jenny Lind parted. And it was quite amicable, wasn't it? The original contract had given her uh, options for dropping out. All along, she kept writing letters saying, Barnum is treating me wonderfully. But the tour, I think, was just so exhausting for both of them that it got to a point where they'd done the Southern tour, come up the Mississippi, up the Ohio, back to the East Coast. And Barnum himself was just exhausted. And um, so he um, he said to her, would you like to get out of this? They were both exhausted. And she said yes. And he was, I think, at that point, very happy to go home. He'd been away from his family for six months at that point. I think that one of the things about Lind that's important is that it helps people kind of get into the idea of an opera singer who was a woman of the people, and she was portrayed that way. And that helps Americans today who have this almost indelible image of opera as being 
aristocratic and expensive and elite and, you know, not popular music by any means. That helps them get into the idea that opera music, the arias and so forth, the stuff that, that Jenny Lynn was singing was, was stuff that people ate up. They loved it. And it was, it, it was ubiquitous in the American soundscape for the entire 19th century, which as far as I'm concerned is a part of our American musical heritage that most people don't know about. And I think it's important for us to realize that Americans in the 19th century didn't just sing spirituals maybe or um, Stephen Foster tunes, but were, it was a pretty sophisticated musical and theatrical world that people just knew. It was, you know, it, it, music was such an important, was as important in American life in the 19th century as it is today. It was a, a great success story for Barnum on a number of levels. I mean, one was financially, but, and it allowed him to do a lot of things that didn't turn out very well as it, as it happened uh, with, the, with the money he made. But um, I think that it, it was a very important moment in this long-running project of Barnum's to make entertainment more uh, accessible to people, to make people feel more comfortable going to venues. And also it helped create this kind of personal relationship between people who did not know Jenny Lind, would maybe never even see her perform, but but to create a sense that they somehow knew Jenny Lind, that 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 she was a a a figure in their lives and so she's a very important stop on the road to the frenzy of renown or you know to the creation of sort of superstardom and i mean i don't know if this is a good thing necessarily but uh it's certainly something that's quite a, her her visit is something i think identifiably different from the other sorts of performers who came and toured. And and um, so I guess that would be the, the importance of it. Robert and Catherine, thank you both very much indeed for joining me on the podcast to talk about Jenny Lind. Thank you for having us. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Adam. Robert Wilson and Catherine Preston. The Swedish Nightingale's sensational American tour was a watershed moment for American popular entertainment. More than any of the other celebrity performers who made lucrative American tours, Jenny Lind helped establish the theatre as a respectable place for middle-class families. But ironically, if this was therefore one of the first occasions in which a singer could pull in the crowds from all backgrounds, it was also one of the last. Just a decade or so later, culture began to fracture along the now familiar lines of high and low brow, with opera firmly relegated or promoted, I suppose, depending on your perspective, to the highbrow category. But while it lasted, this shared cultural event was amazing. At a moment when the United States was violently fracturing over slavery, Barnum created a genuinely national experience. Northerners and Southerners, pro-slavery and anti-slavery people, working class and middle class people, all were seduced by the Swedish Nightingale. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope from Oxford's Bodhmere American Institute. 
The reader was Dane Udenberg. The producer was Emily Williams. And I'm Adam Smith. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give us a rating on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye.